and welcome everyone to the Mitch Pitch. Today is Sunday, December 12th, 2021, and I am Magpie Libertarian, live on the field of active listening and engagement, where you can provide portions of the content of every show. Where did the moniker Magpie Libertarian come from? What can we learn from the many stories of gun rights and gun laws? What is Alaska's new nonpartisan top four open primary all about? Singing a new song, what will you compose? All today on The Mitch Pitch. Before I begin today's show, I'd like to take a moment to um, acknowledge the tremendous tragedies in the Kentucky area from the tornadoes this weekend. Uh, is several states affected. A tornado that lasted 242 miles on the ground um, so many lives lost and entire towns wiped out. Uh, if we can take a moment just to think of those people, keep them in our hearts. Thank you. Some time ago, I responded to a request for submissions for a collection of stories about people's journeys from the left to libertarianism. I'm happy to say that along with 22 other stories, my essay was selected to be included in Tom Garrison's book, Why We Left the Left, which was published in 2012 and is available through Amazon. I find it interesting that most of the people I meet today in the LP came here from the right, which makes me a bit of an oddity, really. But I don't think that is going to continue, and I'll tell you why. The Republican Party was rattled by the Tea Party back in 2009, and they responded. The Tea Party, while gaining a few battle wins, lost the war with the party. Anecdotally, I have personally known people who moved from Tea Party to Libertarian, not always with success, um, but they have. The crux of the matter is that Republicans who want small government don't fit into the party anymore and are looking for a new home. Could it be the Libertarian Party? Possibly for some, maybe many. Time will tell. By contrast, the Democratic Party experienced its backlash later when the squad and other progressives led by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez were elected in 2018 to the Congress. Much like the Tea Party challenge to Republicans, the squad are challenging the Democrats to move the platform dramatically in their direction. The difference is that the more progressive wing of the Democrat Party have grabbed and held on to far more power than the Tea Party ever did. In this case, what I expect to see in the coming few years are new libertarians from the left, like me. The role that Biden has played in his disastrous first year in office likely opened the door for many to exit, either in disgust, frustration, or any other number of feelings. I came from the left in 1992, when I voted for Ross Perot for president. I've never felt a home in a particular party because I couldn't just toe the party line. Over the years, I watched the Democrats promise and fail to deliver over and over again. I watched as they worked hard to implement laws that were 
counterproductive to the outcome we needed. While Democrats claimed to be a party for all, welcoming diversity and love, they wanted everyone to be the same. You could never have your own ideas. I hated politics and politicians because all they did was tell me that I didn't know what was best for myself, only they did. In 2008, Bob Barr was the nominee for the Libertarian presidential candidate. It's the first time I actually took a look at the Libertarians because, truthfully, I had never even heard of them before. By now, I was so sick of the D.C. shuffle, Clintons and Bushes, wars and wars, that I needed something different. Fast. We had just moved back to Massachusetts after my husband's time with the U.S. Air Force, and we were reintegrating into our small hometown. Within a few years, I had joined the Massachusetts Libertarian Party and had run for office, the school committee for our town, and won. I spoke at our convention that year, too. It was so small, maybe eight people or so, and I was the only elected one there. It was quite an honor to speak. That experience actually didn't go well, the school committee. The short story is that the school committee had lied to the public, and I wanted them to come clean, apologize, and move forward. It was about money, of course. What else? And after a few months with no success, and the continued expectation that I would participate in this lie, I resigned. This is not how a first experience is supposed to go. They were breaking the law, and I was too new to the whole thing to really know what I could do within the law to change that. In the end, I accomplished my goal. The public found out the lie. The committee members who committed it were all replaced. But it was a painful experience, and as a small town can be, it was brutal. So I took a break. Our family returned to Alaska in 2015, a home we had loved for three years while in the Air Force. I joined the Alaska Libertarian Party and even went to their convention. Again, it was a pretty small crowd, but bigger than Massachusetts had been. I volunteered to run for treasurer since I had success in that role in the past. Once again, I fear I moved far too fast as I had no knowledge of the turmoil that was occurring and how it was going to affect me. It unfortunately became another nightmare, exacerbated by a severe concussion, concussion just a few months after I was elected. Again, I stepped down and stepped away. But over the last few years, as I've recovered from that concussion and rebuilt my civic engagement, I have returned again to the Libertarian Party, but it's a much different place than I left. The Alaska Libertarians have coalesced well behind Chair John Watts. We have some of the most incredible and experienced people on board now. We are engaged and active in our communities, and people are getting elected. And that's where I want to be, a part of that action to make our communities and state a liberty sanctuary. So that's the libertarian part of my name. But what about magpie? A few years ago, I started noticing these new birds in our neighborhood. 
I talked with one of the local bird experts at the Creamer's Migratory Waterfowl Refuge in town. Turns out that these are magpies, and they are newer to our area in the last decade. They have never been north of the Alaska Range before because of the cold climate here. With the changes we have seen, they began to come further north, and now I see them all the time. Their coloration is striking, catching your eye as they glide across the road. In particular, they have long iridescent tails that glimmer in the sunshine. I have really grown to love these birds, even though they can be a nuisance to some. Many people know them as collectors of shiny things, but I have learned that they actually don't like the reflecting shiny stuff, so they hide it. I feel that they are a bit of a kindred spirit, so I would like to be associated with them. Magpie is intentionally spelled to sound like the bird, but have its own meaning. Pi is the ratio of the circumference of a circle to its diameter, or put another way, taking the roundabout route to another point or going directly there. By tracing the circumference, we attempt to encompass the 360 degrees of perspective on an issue, and the diameter represents the straight line of sight to the solution-focused action. Pi also happens to be the first two letters of pitch, as in Mitch Pitch. So mag, initials to identify myself, and pi, a shortened pitch. As I was preparing to talk about self-defense and firearms today, I found myself moving in two separate directions, issues related to firearms and issues related to security. So this week I am going to focus on the matter of firearms themselves, and next week I will talk about personal security as a broader topic. In both cases, we will be taking a look at decision-making, how people might come to different conclusions and some ideas about the possibility of why. I believe most people are familiar with the first two cases I am going to discuss today, Kyle Rittenhouse and Ethan Crumley. Kyle Rittenhouse was a 17-year-old with a rifle involved in a shooting that caused two deaths and one injury. Ethan Crumley was a 15-year-old with a handgun involved in a shooting that caused four deaths and seven injuries. The third case I would like to share today is an older story from 2015 of a 39-year-old male accidentally shot and killed with a rifle while deer hunting with a 36-year-old companion. All three stories involve firearms and loss of life. It is how they are different and whether gun laws would change the outcomes that I would like to focus on today. What is self-defense? Recently, this came up in a conversation uh, I had with John Watts, chair of the Alaska Libertarian Party, and D.L. Neal, a fellow libertarian. Self-defense would be an act on my part in response to an aggression uh, on another's part against me. Of course, the idea is that if your rights are being violated, you have the right to protect yourself. However, this does not address the potential of being assaulted by another 
and your right to defend yourself. As we discussed together a hypothetical situation, say a known pedophile in your presence, is it self-defense to act against them to protect yourself or your children? We felt at that time, no, it is not. It is akin to a preemptive strike and is not justifiable as a case of self-defense. I believe where we as a society run into challenges is in this very idea of whether an action is a response or an initiation. And at what point does the intention begin? Are we justified in defending ourselves long after an attack is over? In fact, do we even have the right to define what a threat is for another person? I am not here to give you an answer, but to pose the question, because I don't have all the answers, and I won't pretend to. I took some time during the Rittenhouse trial to listen in on a conversation on the social media app Clubhouse. It was a room with hundreds of people and dozens on stage sharing their thoughts. I heard the vast majority in that particular room arguing that Kyle had gone there looking for a fight. Their reasoning made sense because it was framed in the context of their own experiences in their communities. Where they lived, having a gun was a sign of aggression to others. If self-defense is a response to aggression, then it is reasonable to defend yourself against someone merely possessing a gun. What becomes clear to me is that we are talking about cultural differences. Clashes between the perceptions of others based on one's own experience rather than that of the person they perceive. It's natural. That's what we do. How can we perceive someone else through their eyes of their culture if we don't even know their culture? As well, we may have no reason to believe such a culture could even exist because we've never seen evidence of it ourselves. So it leads me to wonder how many confrontations we have in society that are really nothing more than misunderstood cultural differences. The tragedy, of course, is when misunderstanding leads to loss of life. So why aren't we doing more to understand each other instead of staking claims on one being right and all the others wrong? In the case of Ethan Crumley, we do not have all the facts, so we really can't say anything about intentions yet. Why did this happen? With the few facts we know, it does not appear that he was in a situation where he was responding to an immediate threat, which would then mean it was not an act of self-defense. I don't think anyone would claim that it was self-defense. To most of us, I expect it appears to be an unwarranted act of aggression. Because we generally agree that aggression against another is not acceptable, 
we can conclude that his actions cannot be excused for any reason. So if we go back to the hypothetical situation of a pedophile now, what if someone knows that a person is a pedophile because that person assaulted them when they were a minor? They may not have been able to defend themselves back when it happened, but now they can. They have a gun. Would they be justified in claiming self-defense if they shot that person now? Suddenly, it's not so clear anymore, and many of us are left in a philosophical debate with ourselves. It's not an immediate threat, but it could be, because it had been. So can we act in response, or are we now the aggressor? Just to play devil's advocate because we don't know, and I am not trying to suggest that this is the case. But what if Ethan Crumley had been physically assaulted and bullied by students at his school? Again, I'm not saying he was. There's no evidence yet that that was even the case. I'm putting this out there to think about, because it's something we really need to take a hard look at. Would a target of bullying be justified in an act of aggression against the bullies as a matter of self-defense? I don't know. I would need to spend some serious time discussing this with others to see if I could decide. As a society, though, we have to put some kind of line out there of what is justified and what isn't. And that line depends on what life experiences we each have had. The last case I want to consider is a hunting accident. The facts are pretty straightforward and leave me deeply saddened. One person was in the tree stand and the other on the ground. The one on the ground loaded the rifle and handed it to the person in the stand who then accidentally shot him, with, which resulted in his death. Just as we have rules of driving safety when operating a vehicle, there are rules of gun safety that everyone who handles firearms responsibly knows. This accident was the result of not following those essential rules. Depending on the source, those rules are stated in 4 to 12 um, different rules, but the basics are critical. One, assume all guns are loaded and don't load a gun until you are ready to use it. Number two, never point a gun at something you aren't willing to destroy. Know your target and what is behind it. And number three, keep your finger off the trigger until your sights are on the target and you are ready to shoot. Unfortunately, during this hunting accident, the gun was loaded before they were in the tree stand in position and ready to use it. When he handed the gun to the person in the stand, he handed it with the muzzle pointed at himself. When the person in the stand took the gun, they grabbed the gun at the trigger. What made this particular incident so upsetting to me 
was that I knew the person involved and his wife. I knew he had all the training, knew all the rules, but for some reason that day didn't follow them. It was devastating to an entire community because it was something that never should have happened. So even when we know what we should be doing, sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes people just make mistakes, even leading to death. So what do all of these cases have in common? They involve firearms. And the question we ask ourselves now is, do we need laws to address these losses? But before jumping to an answer, I ask that we think about a few things. The loss of life, especially unexpected and immediate, is a trauma. When we lose someone, we grieve. Depending on your own circumstances, you may be grieving in a trauma response or both. One thing psychologists generally agree on is that we should not make major life decisions in the immediate aftermath of a death of a loved one. Perhaps you have had an experience that would support that. Some of you may not, but generally it's not a good idea. There are always exceptions, but this is not one. We need time to look at each situation with hindsight. And we can't do that until it has ended and we have moved on. There's no easy answer of when that is, but it is not in the immediate aftermath of the incident. That I know for sure. So these are three instances of people with firearms who caused the death of another from that firearm. But what of the millions of people who own firearms, who shoot them every day, and have never caused the death of another? Going back to the operation of a motor vehicle, millions of people drive them every day, but some cause the death of another person. I am not saying that guns and cars are the same, but they are both capable of killing a person. I believe we would be better off, actually, if Everyone remembered that when they are driving. A car has the potential to kill. So does a gun. We don't look at cars the same way, of course, because we use them for transportation all the time. We use them to pull loads, to push snow, to haul equipment and supplies. We don't see cars as something we use to kill other people. But, according to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, in 2020, we killed an estimated 38,680 people in vehicle crashes. Some, maybe many or even the majority of those, could have been avoided. Mostly impaired driving, speeding, not wearing a seatbelt, or some combination caused these deaths. We educate about all these things, but in the end, people make mistakes. Mistakes with horrible consequences. I would like to ask those listening to look at guns 
in a different way than the media have had us do for the last many years. Consider looking at a gun as a tool, like a car. According to a Pew Research survey in 2017, over half of gun owners use their guns for target shooting. About 34% use their guns for hunting. In fact, a whopping 70% of Americans have said they have fired a gun at least once in their lives. In August of this year, GunFacts.info shared a story using U.S. crime statistics and reports from the ATF and other studies to show that fewer than 1% of guns, in fact, it's fewer than 0.1% of guns in the U.S., are used in crimes, any crime, not just murder. As well, over 90% of people committing a crime with a firearm got that firearm illegally. We educate, we make laws, and in the end, people make bad decisions. Decisions with horrible consequences. So I'll leave you with this thought. Not an answer, but definitely something to think about. Why are people making bad decisions? Whether it's the use of firearms, automobiles, alcohol and drugs, or even food. Why are people making bad decisions? I would suggest that perhaps the answer to our crises lies somewhere in that answer. How do we protect ourselves from other people's bad decisions? I know that there is a wide range of ideas of how we do that. But in the end, the only law we need is one that holds people accountable for their decisions, don't you think? And in our final segment today, the elections in Alaska and the primaries. In November of 2020, the people of Alaska voted to adopt several election law changes through a citizen's initiative. Tonight's focus is the change to an open, nonpartisan top four primary. There are two stated items under findings and intent of the initiative, which are relevant to this particular discussion. One, it is in the public interest of Alaska to improve the electoral process by increasing transparency, participation, access, and choice. Also, number four, it is in the public interest of Alaska to adopt a primary election system that is open and nonpartisan, which will generate more qualified and competitive can candidates for elected office, boost voter turnout, better reflect the will of the electorate, reward cooperation, and reduce partisanship among elected officials. We will find out in August 2022 whether the new laws, as enacted, will achieve these intentions. So what will this new primary look like? First, it is unique to Alaska. The National Conference of State Legislatures designates primaries by category. We have closed in nine states, partially closed in six states, partially open in six states, 
open to unaffiliated voters in nine states and open in 15 states. Top two is a system in California and Washington only. And the final category is other, which encompasses Louisiana, Nebraska, and Alaska. So while offering detail about the unique systems in Louisiana and Nebraska, all the NCSL has to say about us is Alaska has a unique top four open primary system for state and congressional offices. <laughs> they address presidential primaries separately, and I won't cover it here due to the complexity, but in Alaska, the presidential primary is going to be just like the state and congressional offices primary. Alaska's primary most closely resembles California and Washington, but with some key differences. California and Washington both list all candidates on one ballot, as Alaska will, where California lists each candidate's party affiliation, and in Washington, each candidate is authorized to list a party preference. In Alaska, candidates will all appear on the same ballot and are able to choose whether or not they want to list their reg registered affiliation or be listed as nonpartisan or undeclared. If no affiliation for the candidate or they don't request a specific one, they will simply be listed as undeclared. The second difference is that California and Washington both use top two systems, where Alaska will be a top four system. As a note, since our new primary is designed specifically to work with our new general election, it's important to understand how they affect one another. So I will be talking about the effect of the open top four primary on the general election next week. But right now, one note I will mention is that there is no option to write in a name on the primary ballot as there was in the past. It makes sense in the big picture because write-ins are possible in the general election. So that said, the primary laws adopted in 2020 are intended to accomplish transparency, generate more candidates, boost voter turnout, better reflect the electorate, reward cooperation, and reduce partisanship among those elected. In August, we will find out if these goals are achieved, and in the meantime, what ideas helped to prompt these expected outcomes. Transparency. In party primary systems, whether they're open, closed, or in between, ultimately it is the party leaders who decide who will be the candidate on the ballot. The party has secured a ballot access point, and the party holds control over the name that goes there. While the act of voting in a primary does not present, or does present, sorry, an opinion of some of the constituents, the reality is that turnout is so low that most people are just saying, eh, let the party decide. In this regard, there is no transparency to the selection process. 
backroom conversations, deals, personal favors, whatever goes into this decision-making is not something we are generally privy to. So we rarely know the true reason someone's name is on the ballot. With the top four open primary, the parties do not control the ballot, nor the names appearing on it. Every candidate files the same papers to appear on the ballot, pays the same fee, and provides the information that the people of Alaska have decided we need to know about how they got there. With the additional changes to campaign finance laws in the state, it provides the most transparent view of the forces behind a candidate that I've experienced in my lifetime. Let's look at participation. We are looking for this new system to boost both participation in running for office and in voting on election day. In regards to running for office, the new open primary removes the barrier of ballot access laws. For a filing fee of $25, any eligible Alaskan can have their name on the ballot for any position based on the criteria for holding that office. Candidates can choose whether their party affiliation will be listed by their name or simply nonpartisan or undeclared. Party affiliation is not party endorsement, so parties cannot stop someone from running simply because they are registered with that party and they don't want them to run. Will there be candidates without serious campaigns? Probably. But does that matter? You get to vote for whomever you like, serious or not, about their campaigning. In regards to voter turnout, it's a lot more difficult to project the potential changes. While we can look at California and Washington for a general idea, the demographics of Alaska and the culture of Alaska are quite different from them. How would we account for that? In a recent press conference, even Lisa Murkowski, our incumbent senior senator who's running for re-election, admitted that her campaign really didn't know what to expect for voter turnout. I admit that made me feel a lot better about feeling like I was flying blind. Intuitively, we think that more people will vote because their vote will really matter. However, if the educational campaign is less effective than needed, uh, it might not have as much effect as we would like because people are creatures of habit. We are used to having our candidates handed to us. I feel that the real change in voter behavior is much more likely in 2024 once everyone understands the true power in the open top four primary, the power of choice. Greater access and greater choice are two important goals of this initiative ballot measure. And the laws as written now do a good job of enabling that to happen. That's the input. Does better input give us better output in the form of general election candidates who better reflect the will of the electorate. 
Intuitively, yes, but we don't know all the influencing factors yet until we get out there and execute the plan. Will this process, in fact, reward cooperation? If candidates are open to different campaign methods and strategies than the traditional bash the opponent, this is a possibility. However, old habits die hard, and I feel this is truly an obstacle for the entrenched, lifelong politicians. Reducing partisanship is a natural follow-on to this process, and it would appear that candidates who do cooperate and focus on ideas instead of parties would generate more appeal. This could be opening a door to a changing of the guard and a better way of doing politics. When all is said and done, the outcome of the primary is that every voter gets one vote, and when the votes are counted, the people in the top four positions will continue to the general election ballot. The law also specifies very specific situations that could lead to the person who came in fifth going to the general election, but those are exceptions. Um, anyone who does not achieve selection for the general election may choose to run as a write-in candidate instead. I am very excited about our election this year because I see opportunities that were previously very hard to come by. Ballot access alone is a huge hurdle so many have to face that we no longer need to. We are no longer beholden to the wishes of a handful of powerhouse party leaders, which of course they are fighting in court. We have the chance to see a general election ballot with names we can support instead of names we are trying to stop. I have good feelings about this. I hope you all do too. So now it's your turn. I need your perspectives. If you go to anchor.fm slash magpie libertarian, M-A-G-P-I libertarian, you can listen to all my podcasts, but even better is that you can click on the message button and we'll have one minute to leave a question for me, a suggestion for a future show topic, or your response to this week's question. What does personal security mean to you? I'll be talking about personal security next week and look forward to your input. I may use quotes from your message or play your message or part of it during the show by leaving a message at anchor.fm slash magpie libertarian. You give me permission to share your name and the contents of your message. So if you would like to contribute to next week's podcast, please head over to anchor.fm slash magpie libertarian m-a-g-p-i libertarian and record your message that's all for today thank you for engaging here with us on the mitch pitch join us again next sunday as we take to the field listening to understand each other and taking solution focused actions to better our world be well in the peace of the northern sky I am Magpie Libertarian.